Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The following is a presentation of Morning Drive Media. Welcome to another edition of Casterly Talk. I'm your host, Ken Napslock. For this edition, getting ready for Season 8. It's prep time, and that's what it's all about here. Just me tonight, the normal crew, which will consist of a rotating cast of friends like Lawn Harris, Andres Cabrera, Rachel Cushing, Michelle Boyd, and many others all through the season. Season 8 of Game of Thrones and, and beyond. We're not stopping. We got the prequel series. We got more books. A lot of, a lot of things to talk about in the world of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones, Age of Heroes, and beyond. So, this episode, I wanted to focus on getting ready for season eight of Game of Thrones. If you're a Game of Thrones fan like me, if it's something that is deep in your heart, each season, starting with season two, included an amazing amount of prep. I mean, if you're a casual fan, God bless you. Sometimes I wish I was that. Sometimes I wish I was someone who would just sit down, enjoy a show, turn it off, and get on with my life. But really, at the end of the day, do I really want to do that? No. Because like you, I am deep in the world of ice and fire. And as each season approaches, we all seem to have our little routines. It's become fun around the water cooler at work or maybe around the uh, the, the, the uh, pool of poison water in the House of Black and White. Doesn't matter where you're discussing it. Uh, y- there's always those things. Have you uh, have you started your Game of Thrones rewatch? Ooh, haven't got to it yet. I got to get to that. And each season, of course, it's become progressively harder. I mean, getting ready for season two was downright easy. Just watch season one again and chances are, you already bought the DVDs or Blu-rays, and uh, you already were watching uh, through, through your second watch through. Maybe it was uh, like me following season one of Game of Thrones. He said, all right, all right, I'm going to give these these little books a try. That was part of my prep, too. Uh, didn't want to read ahead of the show. That came a little bit later. I went into season four knowing what was supposed to happen in general we obviously know the show changes some things here and there which is part of the fun now once you uh i I really do see them as the same thing but very separate and that's okay but it's become harder and this one is the hardest of all the seasons to get ready for number one we've got seven seasons to get through seven whole seasons and uh even though season seven, you know, a little shorter, a little more direct, uh, you you have to get through all the other things. That is, you know, what are we looking at here? 70 hours or so of television. And that includes extras. Because if you're watching on the, the Blu-rays or DVDs, you're going to put in the histories and lore. Uh, if you don't watch them there, you're going to seek them out on YouTube. The deleted scenes. You're going to put all those things together, right, and watch those. So it's not just 45, 55 minutes of an episode. You're watching all of it. And uh, you're just doing, doing some, some studying on the side, trying to get ready. It's not just the program. And if you're, you know, for me, I watch a lot now on, on HBO Now. So you want to uh, stick around for a couple, couple minutes of Inside the Episode with Dan and Dave or one of the performers or one of the actors and one of the writers, one of the directors, getting some insight, getting some tips. Game of Thrones is all about research. And as we also go into season eight, the other big factor, the other thing that's making it even that much more difficult is the amount of time. I, I know Game of Thrones. You listening know the world of ice and fire. We got these names and these events. We treat them like they're our own history. Um, 
but it's interesting. I, I was just last night uh, working out with my uh, my best friend. We we get together once a week and have some quality bonding time in a gym, his own gym at his house, and, and we talk about our favorite things: Star Wars and Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, all of that stuff. And we were just having a discussion, uh, and I was talking about my thought, and I'll say this now, and we'll, we'll, I'm sure talk about this more here on Casterly Talk, and I, and I have already mentioned it. Uh, the idea that I think if, if I was to predict one wild big death in season eight, I, I still might go with Daenerys Targaryen. Just seems the most bittersweet. Jon Snow, that death uh, would be somewhat anticlimactic. We've seen him die before. Would this time be for real? I don't know. I just I just see that, and and, and I was discussing this with my friend and i i said my my big point of, of of evidence my big thing i point to is just going back to season two and the shortened versions of the prophecies dreams whatever you want to call the visions that she receives in the house of the undying which i can only say it like that uh in the books obviously a little bit more but everything's going to be a little bit more in the books we've established that we know that but in the show, hey, it's quick and to the point. And I, 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 I keep saying that in general, in general, everything Daenerys sees in that series of visions, we accept as going to happen or has happened or just, you know, something we're going to see this season. A lot of it is King's Landing, the Red Keep destroyed, the throne still there, but snow on King's Landing. She goes north, there's something key north of the wall she's up there i mean daenerys doesn't even know i mean she knows of the wall but she's never been there right unless she 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 visited it on some visited the wall on um you know when she was barely a week old or something like that you know what i mean but here she's up there and then she walks and is reunited in this vision with kyle drogo so uh, to me i i am kind of bad at predictions but I just like to see things f- f- roll out in front of me. Uh, but, you know, I'm like, all right, hey, we, we see everything else happening. We think, oh, yeah, King's Landing probably going to be destroyed. Winter has come. It's starting to snow. We saw that uh, as Jamie Lannister's walking out of King's Landing. Snow was a fall. And Danny's uh, at the wall or we'll be heading to the wall. We can see all this stuff. She takes uh, Sarah up there. We see all that. We accept all that. So why can't we accept the idea that she would be reunited in some sad, bittersweet way with Cal Drogo in her death? Uh, so having this wonderful, deep discussion with my fellow nerdy friend over a nice round of weightlifting, and I said, you know, the visions she receives when um, she's at the she's at Carth, and uh, you know the the uh, the purple guy says stuff to her, <laughs> I just drew this big. Blank on course Piet Pri, House of the Undying, the Warlocks, all this, and, and I <laughs> just like I I was angry with myself. I couldn't pull the name right away, and and it's I don't even I'm not I'm a Star Wars trivia guy. Some of you might know that if you follow my adventures on the movie trivia schmodown. Even there, I have my limitations, but I I am not so much a game of thrones deep dive trivia person but i know i i could do some trivia on the show like that i'm sure i could compete but so here i am completely drawn a blank on the warlocks of Korth, piet pri the purple guy and it just really drove home the fact that i need to get my rewatch started i need to ramp up so that was last week the next day i started i said time is a wasting it seems like we have enough time. It seems like you can binge a lot of shows. You can do the thing. You could throw life aside and sit down on a Saturday and knock out five episodes of a season and, and, and kind of keep get up to speed or keep pace with other people. Because I know some friends who are like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm in season seven of my rewatch. I'm in season five. Uh, had some uh, supporters on my Twitch channel. Oh, I'm just, uh, just halfway through season four, man. And here I am, haven't even begun. So I have turned it up. If you follow me and listen to me in my Star Wars world, you'll know that this is uh, this is significant. I received the Padme book, the the uh, Queen's Shadow book by E.K. Johnston. Looking uh, very much looking forward to that book. Big Padme fan, big Star Wars novel reader, 
I have it. It is sitting there untouched. I've been waiting for this for a year. I've been waiting for this before it was even announced. I'd be on Collider Jedi Council going, give me a Padme book. Well, now I have a Padme book in my hands. And I've had to make the tough decision to set that aside so I can get ready for season eight. You got to get in fighting shape. And I know you out there have have a GOT fighting shape routine. So call to action. Call to action. I'm going to continue talking here, but call to action. You, if you follow me on Twitter at Ken Knapsack, let me know. You can use the hashtag Casterly Talk, but also use the hashtag GOT Fighting Shape. And I want to hear the things you do outside of just your rewatch, which is the biggest thing. The most important thing is getting back into the world. Because even though we know, we know, we know, we know everything. We got big predictions. We've seen it. We've seen these episodes several times. I watched every episode of season seven last year four times by Monday evening the next day, often for that night. Because at the time I was doing the Collider uh, Thrones uh, talk show or whatever we we called it. Um, and I uh, I wanted as much knowledge in my head. I don't like doing... Game of Thrones recap shows that are watch the show, race into the studio, and try to get it out there for the views. And that is a strategy you have to do. It's it's the name of the game if you're working for a digital media company. I understand. Uh, for watching Thrones with Screen Junkies, we we're fortunate enough to do it Monday morning. And even that was, you know, you had to cram, you had to get ready. But... Hey, number one, no one there wanted to come to work on Sundays, myself included. We wanted to watch a show, pull videotape. We needed to pull clips, pictures, all those things, and get it going. So uh, we agreed. The management at the time agreed. Uh, Ken, you can do your silly little show. Do it the next day, like at 11. So that's why watching Thrones when I was there was the next day. Uh, when I went over to Collider, they offered me uh, graciously to, to, to host the show with Roka, Dennis Zen, Rachel Cushing. And we had to strike a deal because they're like, we want the we want this Sunday night. People are willing to come in. And I said, well, I, I am not, but I'll do it. I don't want to be an a-hole. I want to be somewhat easy to work with. I don't want to be, uh, you know, Joffrey. Um, so we did premiere and then we did the finale live Sunday night right after. And, I, and the next day we did it Monday afternoon. So, you know, on the nights, on the days we did it Monday afternoon, I, I got to cram three or four episodes. I just don't like, you hit the set, you hit the set, and you're, and you're just barfing up some information. You're, you're scrambling on IMDb, and it's not even about theories or going to Reddit and finding something and feeling like you know what you just saw in the episode. It's just base-level stuff. You know, I keep going back to Jim Broadbent, you know, he's, uh, oh, I'm, I'm like, that's definitely going to be Archmaster Marwin. It's got to be, and it's not, and, and it's like, uh, you know, you got it wrong. And trust me, the internet lets you know. And we talked about a, a little bit on the last Casterly Talk. All that to say, all that to say, this is like an episode of the Afternoons of Josh and Ken. I'm just, I'm just going all over the place. And I hope you guys are enjoying the ride. But the rewatch is often not enough. So I did start that. I did start that. I got three episodes under my belt at the time of this recording. By the time you're hearing this, I will have more. And we're going to talk about that. There's some Things in those uh, first three episodes I just want to discuss and have fun with. But in addition to that, finally pulled down off the shelf, graciously gifted to me, the book Fire and Blood, George R. R. Martin's part one of the Targaryen history. I said, all right, Padme book, you got to wait. I'm going to dive in. And I am at the time of this recording nearly 400 pages into the book. And I got to tell you something. Much to my surprise, this might be my favorite Game of Thrones reading experience. Uh, I know what that's... That's a lot. That's a lot to say, I will admit. Storm of Swords, Dance with Dragons. uh, Those are my favorite of the Game of Thrones books. Opinion probably shared with a lot of people. Not unique there. I mean, but I I love them all. I've, I've even slowly, over the last year, every once in a while, I just pick up Feast for Crows and I just read a chapter here, read half a chapter kind of getting myself familiar a little bit, but just going down that journey again. But Fire and Blood, part one, we're getting two. I am enjoying it. I am I am at the I can't put it down phase. I read last night uh, one of the chapters. I'm still in Jaehaerys, the first reign, towards the end of it. 
And it's a long reign, so there's a lot written about it. And, and in this one chapter, gosh, it seemed like nearly 100 pages. And I just couldn't stop reading it last night and turned, uh, finally finished it, closed the big book, boom, turned, it was like 2 a.m. And I'd started at like midnight. And that's how much I'm enjoying this book. And not that I didn't experience it. I, I think the second half of Storm of Swords, so funny. I remember reading that experience. Uh, th- this reading experience for me was uh, I had uh, watched season three. So I was, though I had heard rumblings of something called the Red Wedding, uh, I wasn't sure what was happening. So season three was the last thing I experienced without having any deep advanced knowledge of what will happen or what might happen. Uh, then I picked up the the third book right after, I mean, probably right after the finale started reading. And I, I found myself not struggling, but like the first half of the book, I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. All right, George, we keep describing meals that everyone's eaten, getting bogged down in this stuff. And I put the book down for maybe two weeks. Again, not out of like, I didn't like it, but just out of like, uh, I need to, you know, the book's not moving that fast for me. Uh, I'm going to just set it down. And then once I got to the Red Wedding in the book, from the Red Wedding to the end of the book, the stuff that happens, when you don't know the story, there's a lot of stuff that we see in season four. Um, I, I couldn't put the book down then, so I've experienced that before. But Fire and Blood is a little different because it's it's a little easier to read. I think George R. R. Martin, because he's writing this history book, is dictated to him by the maesters of, uh, of, the, of our time, all this kind of stuff. I think... He doesn't get bogged down in little details that sometimes uh, make the uh, Song of Ice and Fire books a, a, a tough read at times. Grabbing a pen and paper, making notes, you know, that kind of thing. This one's just, there's a lot of confusing names. Those Targaryens, they like similar names and the same names. Um, a lot of sisters marrying brothers, a lot of brothers marrying sisters. We know that, we can expect that. So there's a little bit of that, but I think it moves so fast, it moves so easily. I, I am just having a great time, and it's it's so fun. I'm like counting down. I think the last page I read, the time of this recording. I don't know how many times I'm going to say at the time of this recording. Bear with me. Um, but I uh, the last page we had reached 100 years AC, 100 years after the conquest, and I'm, I'm like getting excited. I've got a long way to go. I've got like 181 years to the events that I really know that we really know that are associated with the with the show, Robert's Rebellion, and. And all that, uh, all that good stuff. So, uh, but I'm like, I'm like nervously excited. Like, oh, we're we're at a hundred years after. We're we're almost there. And some of the names, you know, some of the names of the houses, some of the, you, you know, they're obviously familiar names. But you're like, oh yeah, we go. Oh, the reigns of Castamere. Go oh, the Conningtons. We got a lot of that. Bring in, uh, bring in the the Terrell guy. We can bring in one of the Terrells. To work at the small council here, bring his, he's dumb, bring his smart wife. We've seen that trope before at the Tyrell family. So I'm getting like excited, getting closer. And that's helping me get into that frame of mind, getting ready, just getting in the world, getting in the world. And I wonder if you guys need to do that as well, to get into the world of Game of Thrones. Just knowing the history. Again, we treat this as, it's, it's like Star Wars or Lord of the Rings. All, all, all these things we love. If you're a Wheel of Time fan, I, I'm aware of it. haven't read it myself. I'll wait for the TV show. Then I'll start reading all, what, 20 books it is. Uh, um, my friend Michelle, Michelle Boyd was telling me about another book series, and she's going to kill me because I forgot. She's like, you got to give that a, a get, it's like the King's Pizza Pie, King's Shadow. I don't know, something like that. Not to be confused with the Queen's Shadow, the Padme book sitting over there on my shelf ready to, for me to read. Um we love, if if you're listening to this show and you're still following my ramblings, you probably, like me, love just getting wrapped up in this world like it's a warm, comforting blanket. And I don't know if anyone has created a, a more robust, realistic world and history like George R. R. Martin has cr- created, which is why I love the World of Ice and Fire book. I have the World of Ice and Fire app. A lot of times I'll just bring it up, start well, not testing myself like trying to get trivia answers, but just scrolling through a name or a castle or a house or an event or a battle and just typing on, uh, pressing on that, on that uh, you know, the icon there and reading about it, learning about it. And that's, that to me is just as important, again, for me, and I want to know, hashtag GOT fight in shape. I want to know what you do to get in shape to watch Game of Thrones. 
I need to really feel the world. Studying the maps. I always joke, I study the maps. I got I got the map of uh, the world uh, painting hanging in my bedroom. I got the pillows. They're the, uh, the world, the Westeros type. I need the Essos pillows. And just kind of getting that frame of reference. Feeling yourself in that world. So that if a character in season eight says, ah, you know, we... We're going over to, to Molestown. You know where Molestown is. It's generally an easy one, but there's obviously a lot of houses, a lot of castles, a lot of places. You know? We're heading to White Harbor. Got it. I know White Harbor, but where does it relate to other big castles, other events, parts? You know, I get a little foggy in the reach. I, I get a little foggy in the stormlands. Sometimes I'm like, oh, that, that castle's in Dorne? I didn't think that. So I need to really feel as though I'm in the world. And one of the other things that's helping me do that, and and I'll say this, I, I'm very open and honest about where I, uh, my limitations in knowledge or where I need to refresh myself. A lot of times you'll, I'll be on other shows and people will introduce me as a Game of Thrones expert. I, I don't like that at all. I'm an expert appreciator. And I go to other places to continue to learn. And I have no problem giving shout outs to people who I do not know, people I've never talked to, whose channels I love. Uh, my favorite is Alt Shift X on YouTube. A lot of you probably watch uh, his work where it's uh, just really visual, uh, really visually appealing kind of research and learning, short videos, wry sense of humor. I love that stuff. I'll listen to the History of Westeros podcast. You know, I don't often have two and a half hours, but I go through. Uh, I'll, uh, when I was working my old job, it was great. I would just put, it, put them on in the background. And I just discovered one today. And some of you may have already um, been on this. Uh, that's, that's fine. But uh, I'm late to this one. It is a uh, YouTube page called uh, Baz, B-A-Z, Baz Battles. And they cover a lot of, uh, they cover a lot of uh, real world battles. And there's these great, uh, great videos that cover these battles in detail. And, I, and there's a lot, there's other little history YouTube channels that do this stuff as well for real world events. Uh, you know, World War II simplified, uh, that, that channel, uh, his, well, I think it's called history simplified. I, I like that one a lot, but this one, it just popped one of the things it just popped up. The algorithm broke through and I'm sitting here, uh, uh, getting ready to, to nod off last night. And lo and behold, Game of Thrones, Robert's Rebellion, and the Battle of the Trident video. So I clicked on that, and it's fascinating. And I, I'm honestly very familiar with that battle. We Game of Thrones fans, you don't have to be, even be a Song of Ice and Fire fan. You just Game of Thrones fans are familiar with Robert's Rebellion. And by the time season six rolls around, we're getting flashbacks to some of the big events in Robert's Rebellion. And then the other one, and I'll bring a little bit of the sound up here. So you can hear it. I had no permission to play this, so if I get in trouble, I'm sorry. It was a hot and sultry day in King's Landing. Robert Baratheon was dying of boredom at the Red Keep's Hall. Oh, that's beautiful. (laughs) That's so good. It's so good. And the way it's put together, it's presented so well. And what I like about this, this is the one I clicked on right now, is the Greyjoy Rebellion and uh, Siege of Pike. 289 AC. I love this. I love this stuff. Again, generally, like, again, going back to the World War II one that I watched in the other channel, World War II, II Simplified, obviously, I, I, I studied World War II. I'm very familiar with World War, World War II. I've watched all the Spielberg movies. I've played all the right games. But to see it with a map, to see it with little... Here's points and facts, and it's all kind of short and concise. It's it's great. And I did the same thing with the Battle of Trident last night, and I did the same thing with the Siege of Pike, the Greyjoys Rebellion, to really just go, ah, that's right. And oh, that was there. Ah, they moved down here. Well, that didn't seem that far. Um, and that's part of me getting in shape for uh, another season. Advisors at the small council, a royal meeting he seldom bothered to attend. But he barely listened to their droning. <laughs> That's so good. So good. So I just discovered that channel. Shout out to uh, Baz Battles. Uh, if you're already familiar with it, good on you. If you aren't, check them out. All right. 
The other thing I did to get ready is, again, the biggest thing, start my watch along, start my rewatch. But I started taking notes. Now, I don't, I don't recommend you out there take notes unless you have a podcast or a show or you just want to really, really be ready. Maybe that's part of what gets you into GOT fighting shape. I understand it. But I, I took a little notes. Nothing big, nothing deep. Again, you want a big, deep two-hour lesson? This isn't necessarily the podcast for you. This is about diving in, really appreciating this show. And I got some, I got some things for the first three episodes of season one. And I want, I want to talk about them here and share them with you and, and, and get uh, more from you out there listening here on Anchor and Casterly Talk. And these are things that upon your rewatch, it, whether it's your first rewatch or for me, this is, I don't know, the 20th time I've seen season one of Game of Thrones, all told. Little things that that are clues, foreshadowing, and also just mean more. Now that we have all of the show up to season eight out there for us to enjoy, out there for us to comprehend, for us to rewatch, for us to uh, just have in our brains. When you go back and watch each episode of Game of Thrones, I believe you'll find one, two, three, and more of these little moments, again, that aren't just clues. I am not the best at predicting. I don't have a lot of theories on Game of Thrones. I get things I want to see, things maybe I hope I see, and it's same over in Star Wars. It's just not the way I watch things, but I know a lot of you are great at it, and I love a good Game of Thrones theory. More than any other fandom show, movie, property, book. I love sitting down and talking about Game of Thrones stuff, but we are in Endgame. Solutions are starting to happen, which means your theories might get tossed out. If we say over on Force Center with Joseph Scrimshaw and Jennifer Landa, speculate responsibly because you create uh, uh, super expectations for the show within yourself if you're like, this theory is the best and it's going to work. Things change. Things come later. Click game ball. I mean, we were all ready for that. It hasn't happened. It still might. It still might. But if you were upset that it didn't happen early on, you gotta wait. Take a breath. Wait. Wait. So, with that in mind, I wanted to close out today's show with this discussion about clues, foreshadows, and moments that mean a lot more. I picked out about three from each of the first three episodes of Game of Thrones Season 1, and I know I've left some off intentionally. I've maybe missed some, or maybe you have something that you reacted to. So I want to talk about uh, that in the pilot, or the second version of the pilot, the one that we saw, Winter is Coming. That is the single most watched episode of Game of Thrones for me. Because of the rewatch, because of the, you know, that's obviously where you start. And and uh, there's sometimes for me, I got to tell you, uh, sometimes for me, I just, uh, if I'm randomly like, ah, I'm feeling Game of Thronesy today. I, for whatever reason, I just often just put in the pilot again. I don't know what it is. There's something about the first, the cold open, the first 30 seconds, the first three minutes. I love, love, <laughs> I can't tell you enough. I love the opening of the entire series. It's what pulled me in, and I often go back to that. Oh, Will, you're free, you're safe, until you run into Ned, which is the first scene I want to talk about. When Ned has to do the beheading, do his duty as uh, Lord of Winterfell and Warden of the North, Ned gives that speech, and, 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 it's, and it's, again, these aren't big, this isn't some list, hear me out here, this isn't some... Ten hidden Easter eggs you've never heard of before. No, these are things we all talk about, and I want to share them with you and get your reactions, uh, get your responses to them, and and uh, and just kind of celebrate that they exist. Uh, it's the most important one is Ned talking to Bran about the man who who gives a sentence should swing the axe, and what that means not just for Eddard Stark later on. I mean, you're watching that pilot. If you're a book reader at the time, you're like, oh yeah, there it is. But if you're like me and many, many, many others who had not been familiar with the story way back in, what, 2011? Man, the show's been around a long time in our lives. Um, you, you gloss over that. I mean, it's a nice lesson. Father to son in these tough times. Hey, the man who gives a sentence should swing the axe. Sounds good to me. It's only then that we learn. Now, of course, a little, little later on, there's the... the um, 
they discover the this dead stag and uh, the symbolism there, all that kind of stuff going on. Yes, that's there as well. Uh, and that's the scene we can all talk about together. It's, I think that's one of the first little clues when you go back and rewatch Game of Thrones for yourself it, it, where you're like, oh, I think I understand this better. Like there's the dead stag, the dire wolf. This all means something. Same thing as Danny walking into the very hot bathtub as her handmaiden says, oh, it's, it's so hot. No, no, no. Um, that's not a quote. Um, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, she, she was the dragon. We get it. Um, we get it now. I feel so smart. But I love, I love it, it. It's not just about foreshadowing and a clue of what's to come. It's something that means so much more. When you're watching Ned, this honorable man, stubbornly honorable, Part of what his undoing is and part of the appeal of that first season and part of what really pulls people in. It's not just the shock of, oh, Sean Bean, the dude on the posters, is dead. Oh, Sean Bean's dead again. It isn't just that. It's what it means. It's the significance because you are, you are meant to root for Eddard Stark. You're meant to root for the Starks. I think they are entry point into the world. And into our entry point for a reason. They're good. Not perfect. Just read about the history of the Starks. We know that. No house is perfect. But they're good. And it all comes from Eddard Stark. Good, old, honorable Ned. And yes, as things start to, you know, head on down the King's Road, literally, we start to learn more about Ned's past and what's going on, what's he hiding. But even then, as we know now, Ned was good. He was willing to, in a sense, shame himself to keep that promise to Lyanna. He went down to King's Landing against his better judgment. He stayed there against his better judgment. Another moment that we can talk about later, one of my, one of my favorite, most frustrating moments when Baelish keeps Ned there as Ned is packing to leave. Get out of there, Ned! But he doesn't. There's this world of intrigue and backstabbing and politics and who do you trust and all these bad things going on in King's Landing in season one. We are exposed to it. And whether you like Baelish and Varys, and I do, and I did initially, they're interesting uh, characters with amazing actors. So naturally you're pulled in by it, but you don't know. Like, I don't, but I'm not supposed to like Baelish. Is Varys good? We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. Why? We don't like the Lannisters. We hate the Lannisters, but Tyrion seems all right. I don't know. But all of that, Ned's in the middle of all that, and we're supposed to get upset. We're supposed to feel like Ned is going to win, and we know now, just like we learned then in episode nine, it does not. So when you go back to this moment, with Ned just so simply, with great honor, great morality on his side, telling Bran, the man who passes the sentence, should swing the sword, it really means a lot now. The second on my list, we go over to uh, Essos, Pentos specifically, and Illyrio Mopatis sitting with Viserys, actually standing, overlooking the uh, water there. And they're talking, and they've, uh, they've met Cal Drogo, and you get the idea, all right. We know Robert Baratheon don't like them Targaryens. He's talking about the Targaryen girl across the ocean might re- wed a horse lord, and... He wants her dead. And, you know, at the time, though, I think at the end of the day, Robert Baratheon's a, quote, good guy. I think we all can admit he wasn't perfect, far from it. And it's just one of those many lovely, delicious layers we have with uh, season one. And Mark Addy, just go back. If you haven't started rewatch, just focus on his scenes. Oh, he's so good. So much there with Robert Baratheon. But at the time when he's talking uh, with Ned uh, in episode two in the King's Road, just like, no, we, you know, we can't have her marrying a horse lord and can't have 10,000 Dothraki coming over. More of that later, more of that here in a minute there. But, you know, I think I think we all agree we kind of root for him. So it's weird. We're over there. We get Viserys. He seems to be like a little prick. Illyrio Apatis, you don't really know. I, I think Illyrio, you know, he's got some good attentions, what he's working on with uh, uh, Viserys, uh, uh, excuse me, Varys, uh, uh, and the Targaryen restoration with Viserys. Uh, even then, I don't, I always believe, I don't think they 
I don't know if they necessarily thought Danny was the one and the better candidate, but uh, you know, they had to work with what they, they had, but I think Lirio's always, always been uh, playing with Viserys and playing to his ego. And that's this scene. They're sitting there talking about it. And Lirio says that, you know, Viserys, don't worry, man. Don't worry. You're all upset. One day you will cross the narrow sea and reclaim your throne. People want you there, right? The people want you there. And off to the side, Amelia Clark in her first big role is sitting there off to the side. And Daenerys, Danny, future mother of dragons, is, is watching them. And there's a look in her eyes. And I loved it. I didn't, I, I, I'm aware of the scene and it's why I put it on this list, but I was watching it the other day and I had to rewind it. There's a look in Amelia Clark's eyes. She she really captures the moment where I I, I know Danny at the time's a little naive, uh, afraid, doesn't want to go through with what is being put before her. Very much understandably, of course, um, she is not the Danny that we know at the end of the season and, and that we know now. We get we get it. We get her arc. We get her growth. But it's this weird moment. There's a lot of fear, a lot of uncertainty on her face. But also, also she's like. She's off to the side and off to the back, like left. And and Illyrio is, you know, telling Viserys what he wants to hear. But what he's telling him is, you, a Targaryen, will cross the narrow sea and reclaim the throne that was in your family for 300 years. You'll return to Dragonstone. Your house, your seat of power following the doom of Valeria. Like, this, you know, uh, and I'm shortening that history. Yes, I know. Um it's it's monumental for a Targaryen to go back to those shores. And you will reclaim the Iron Throne that is your family's. And he's saying this, Viserys is, of course, of course, of course. And Emilia's off to the side is Daenerys. And the look on her face is like, him? I can't be him. What am I getting involved with? What is this about? I know this is what I was, I was raised to believe. He's the dragon. Don't wake the dragon. But him? It's a great little moment that means so much more now, especially that season seven is behind us. Season seven, for all of its up and downs, I know it was at times for some people a maligned season. Eh, I get I get a lot of it, but I, I loved a lot of what we saw in season seven because a lot of it was the payoff of things like this, moments like this. Go back and watch this moment in episode one of season one. Daenerys Targaryen looking at her brother while someone says, Lyrium Apatis, saying, you will cross the narrow sea. You will reclaim the Iron Throne. The Targaryens will go back there. It ain't going to be him. It's her. And that moment played so well in season seven with no dialogue. Silence. A Targaryen has returned to Dragonstone. Pull down Stannis's banners, which, you know, pains me a little bit. But the moment's great. And the only line is, uh, you know, what she says, shall we begin? And things don't go well for her in season seven. And we get it. We get it. But that moment is a powerful moment if you are steeped in the history of Game of Thrones. And I hope you are. I hope you have no problem rolling up your sleeves and getting into this world and not feeling any nerd guilt or shame about it. You've come to the right place. If you're like me and you study maps of Game of Thrones, of Westeros and Essos, and if you wonder what is west of west, you've come to the right place. Let's all uh, enjoy these little moments, and this is one of my favorite moments. Uh, the number three moment, uh, and it's something I've talked about before, uh, maybe even back uh, when I was doing Daily Thrones here on the same feed. Now it's Casterly Talk. Thank you. Uh, and maybe other places. It's a moment I still want an actual answer. And maybe maybe some of you out there know. Maybe you've uh, read an interview or watched a video clip or read an article or something where this was actually confirmed by the makers of this show, the producers of this show. In episode one, Winter is Coming. Robert Baratheon has marched up to Winterfell, which, you know, as we know, takes 30 days. They got the big feast going on. Jon Snow, you're a bastard. You got to wait outside. So he is there, upset, upset at his place in the world, wants to be something, wants to start over, wants to go join the watch, right? Uh, But all we see is him with his sword hacking away at a training dummy out there. Hack, hack, hacking away. Now, what follows eventually is one of the great Scenes in season one of Game of Thrones. Great establishing scene. Tyrion, Jon Snow, you're a bastard. 
I'm a dwarf. Wear it. Wear it. Wear what you are as a shield because no one can hurt you with it. Great stuff. Great scene. Establishes a lot about Tyrion. A lot of why initially we're like, wait, wait, Lannisters are the bad guys. We like this guy. But sandwiched in between, Jon Snow hacking away at his uh, training dummies, upset, and the great moments with Tyrion that follows is the moment where Uncle Benjen, Benjen Stark, rides in, the first ranger of the Night's Watch, uh, coming on down. And I, the, the, the poetry of this scene compared to what we see later on in season seven, and now, again, that it's all, now that we know uh, we have this all in front of us, it connects to this moment. When Benjen comes down into Winterfell for this feast, Jon Snow is with his sword by himself fighting, hacking, angry, desperate, trying to survive in a way. Here comes his uncle, riding in on a horse, essentially to save the day, to say, yeah, you know, we'll take you the Night's Watch. Tough road ahead, a lot going to happen, as we know. But Benjen rides in on his horse to find Jon Snow alone, hacking with a sword. And Benjen's saving him, essentially, there. And then in Season 7, Jon Snow is alone, hacking with a sword, trying to survive, trying to just... Just do the right thing while his friends and perhaps future lady love slash aunt will deal with that later, John. Fly away on a surviving dragon who arrives to save the day. But Uncle Benjen, John is hacking alone with a sword. Uncle Benjen rides in on a horse to save him. I love the poetry there. And it's type it's the type of thing. I'm not a genius. I'm just a dummy with a microphone where I'm like, that, that, that's got to mean something. That's got to have been intentional. Did they know it then or did they kind of realize they had to do it now? You know what I mean? Did they play that long game? Seems so right. Seems so perfect, and poetic, and beautiful. I love that moment. Going on to episode two, The King's Road, which, you know what I got to tell you, it's, it's perhaps my, one of my, I'll say, one of my, Least favorite episodes of Game of Thrones. It's a good one. It has some great moments. Oh, it has some great moments. But I was watching it again thinking, yeah, I, I don't look forward to the King's Road. I love rewatching that pilot. I rewatched that pilot a lot, as I've told you all. And then always, you got to go into the King's Road. And I think the reason is, I'll be honest, it's a, it's a dire wolf situation. Lady dying. Tough for me as a pet pet lover. That's tough. It's tough for a lot of people. And then Arya having to send send away Namiria. That's tough too. Imagine imagine that doing that with your dog, having to shoo your dog away, throw a rock at it, get away. And that scene means a lot now compared to what we saw in season seven. But the King's Road, it's always a little frustrating to me. And it's also frustrating because it's the first time you really see Joffrey uh, be the Joffrey that we'll grow to hate. Episode one, yeah. He's bad, but Tyrion slaps him twice. You get the sense that, uh, it's a sniveling kid. But in episode two, The King's Road, Joffrey's more than just a sniveling kid. He's a problem, and it seems as though he's going to get away with it. And it's the first time you look at Robert, and you're like, well, come on, Robert. You're the good guy. You're part of the, you're Ned's friend, right? Come on. So it's frustrating to me. But there's a lot of things in there that uh, are great clues, foreshadowing, and mean uh, a lot more now than when the first time you watched them, if you're watching the story unfold for the first time. Again, a lot of you probably were watching season one going, ah, looking at the people on the couch next to you who didn't know and maybe videotaping them or just winking or acting smug, and you had a right to be. Uh, the first thing on my list is Jamie having the, the breakfast, uh, I think he's the breakfast with Tyrion, right? Uh and they're talking about Bran, who is uh, not looking good. He's alive, but probably not going to be walking, probably a cripple. And Jamie says, uh, starts talking about he'd rather have a quick death than being a cripple than not being who he can be, this gallant knight with the greatest sword hand in the world. And, and of course, we know, we know what's going to happen to Jamie, and it's part of it. There's little other things like that along the way that, uh, that uh, point to that. But it's not so much foreshadowing. It's just this uh, this moment where Jamie is holding on to this 
kind of false idol that is himself. It's his insecurity being wrapped up in what he believes he is, uh, what he believes he is to others. And that's where his worth is. And that's dangerous for all of us there. So it's, it's naturally, it's the, the one thing George R. R. Martin's really good about, Hey, what's the one thing I can take away or put in front of the, these characters to make it a big struggle and then cause them to grow or maybe not to grow. And that's clearly it for Jamie. And I love that moment. I just love the moment. Uh, just plays. It's so simple. It can swish right past you if you're not uh, overly familiar with the with what you watch. And it, and I'll have those conversations. I got some good friends again, casual fans that sometimes I envy. You. I envy you casual fans, but you get to just uh, you know glide through. And then now, oh yeah, yeah, Jamie didn't. Uh, yeah, he loses his hand. Right. God bless you. Uh, the second one on my list there, and again, there's, there's a lot in each episode, but I'm going with this one, uh, cause it's such a great scene, but also, and, and the backstory the behind the scenes of how I think they told Sean Bean the answer and obviously he can't say it. And so he carried that into the scene, uh, as Jon Snow is walking away or riding away, going North, joining Uncle Benjamin, Tyrion and his team are marching up to take a vacation to the wall. It is, uh, Eddard Stark and Jon Snow having their last moments together and what this means and uh again even even then if you weren't overly familiar with the story and didn't know what was coming there's just something to this scene that seemed weighted seemed important and you just take it as face value Eh, edder didn't want to talk about having an affair and he's honorable Eh, you get all that even if you're just there for that you know this scene means more but now obviously we really know. And what makes this scene stand out to me is how sad all of the last moments uh, Ned has with everybody. Because he's such a important figure in this story. He's still important now. Season 6, Season 7, especially Season 7. You hear, you hear his words referenced a lot. That was kind of one of the themes going into Season 7. The lessons he taught his kids and the lessons uh, he, he taught them wrong. You know, I, I, I love that they address the fact that he maybe was too protective of his girls for this world. And look what happened. You take Sansa and Arya down to King's Landing, you drop them in there and, and maybe you had protected them too much. And, and I love that. I love that kind of honest in-story criticism of a very good character. But it's a heartbreaking moment. The next time we see you, I promise we'll tell you uh, uh, who your real mother is or I'll tell you about your mother. Uh, whether or not Ned would have actually done that, I don't know. When does is, when is he... He's marching down to King's Landing. He knows he's going to be there a while. John's at the wall. Maybe he's thinking, I bought myself 10 years. I don't know. But he also knows with Daener- Daenerys over in, in the east, over... Um, in Essos there, and Robert, who Robert is, and with things starting to move, Ned's not dumb. He's thick-headed at times, right? Stubborn. But uh, he knows, I think he knows something's coming. And the idea of Jon Snow going north seems uh, very good to him. Go hide at the wall. Be with Benjen. Be up there. Hell, there's another Targaryen up there. He'll help you. Um I got to keep you. I got to hide you. I got to keep hiding you. And if I can't be around in King's Landing, you should go up there. And then it's just a great moment because Ned, Ned is his father for all intents and purposes, right? I'm sad on that level. So that scene means a lot to me now. It's still one of my favorite in Game of Thrones. Again, King's Road, I say it's one of my least favorite episodes. It's not without great stuff. It's perhaps the most frustrating. And then what I already kind of talked about a little bit later on down the King's Road Right before we get out the frustrating stuff with Joffrey and Micah, the butcher's boy, all that stuff, we got uh, Robert and Ned having a little having a little meal, and they're reminiscing. And Ned's obviously lying about was it uh, Wyla, the 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 tavern girl that he might have had the affair with, uh, John's mother maybe uh, a red herring, uh, a swerve right, and we're supposed to go left. Um, but it's a great moment. Again, Mark Addy is so good. The stuff, ah, the stuff with him and Jamie and Barristan talking about their first kill, uh, wine. Great. Um, him and, and Cersei Lannister talking about could it, could it ever have worked out? All, all that stuff is just, gosh, it's the best. Gosh, I love it. Mark Addy. So sad he had to die. <laughs> Wish he could come back. 
You know, it's so funny. People always ask me over on the Star Wars side of things, which Game of Thrones actor do you want to see in Star Wars? And there's a lot of crossover, but in a big, major, meaty role, I got to tell you, I always forget. I think my answer might be Mark Addy. His work as Robert Baratheon some of the best, some of the best in the series. And it is this scene when talk turns to Daenerys over uh, across the Narrow Sea, a Targaryen girl still very much alive. Yes, Viserys in play, but it's interesting. It's interesting that they focused on this. It's Daenerys. It's Daenerys and uh, the power of this union through marriage to this Dothraki horse lord with a horde 10,000 strong. Yes, Viserys would be the one at this in this conversation. They know he'd come over, but they're worried about her. They can't have this union happen. A little bit of clues, a little bit of foreshadowing with Ned saying, "Look, yeah, come on, don't worry about. It. You can't kill every Targaryen, Robert. Just uh, have have a have a eel pie here, all right? Have a pork and eel pie. Calm down. It's the first big clues to to, to their fight that would happen there. Um, but I love it and. And this happens a little bit later. We're going we're gonna, to uh, talk about Joffrey being right. It is one of these moments where now with season seven, even though in season seven, I got, I'm rooting for Danny. Generally, in general, Team Danny. She frustrated, frustrated me a little bit over Marine over there in Slaver's Bay. All good intentions. She was learning. She did some things that sometimes frustrated me, right? And I mean that, I mean that from a point of view of, man, I love this character. I'm rooting for this character. Um, I mean, Sir Jorah is my favorite character, so naturally I'm going to look at Danny in somewhat, maybe hopefully less uh, uh, pathetic way, but, uh, you know, love you, Jorah. But um, I'm rooting for Danny. She does some things. She learns, she has to learn to be a leader. That's what she does. So I, you have to allow that character the ability to learn. But she does some things that are frustrating in the process. But at the end of the day, here we are in season seven, and Robert, the things he says in episode two are right. We can't have this. Now, from the point of view of them, Robert, Ned, the Baratheon reign, from their point of view, and as we know in Star Wars, everything is true from a certain point of view. Uh, the very truths we cling to are true from a certain point of view. Um, Robert's right. It's not going to be a good thing if a Targaryen shows up on our shores with a Dothraki horde of 10,000 riders. Uh, we can't overlook that. They are way more bloodthirsty, skilled. As we say, uh, as we learn in season seven, when they do finally show up, what I like to call the, uh, I think they call it the loot train fight, but I call, I love to call it like Fields of Fire 2, um, even though fields, the first Fields of Fire are much more dramatic and saw the death of two kings. Um, when they show up and Danny's on a dragon and a Dothraki horde is just stampeding down, Jamie Lannister's like, he tells Cersei, like, it's, it was like a hobby. It was like a sport. It was fun to them. We're dying. We're burning. We're barely surviving. And they're like, great, let's grab a beer after. So I love this moment now. There's a lot to this scene, but I love going back now, watching that and going, yeah. He might not have been the best king or might not have ended up being the best king, might have started good. He might have won a war and found it hard to rule, but Robert was right. He did know war, and he did know the dangers. He did know maybe what they could face or would not face, and he probably had studied the history books just enough to know that that Targaryen dynasty that they took down. And at the time, remember, they didn't know there was a dragon in play. Just Targaryens and a horde of Dothraki was bad enough. Now we know she's got dragons. That's not a good thing. A little bonus one uh, moment for me is Tyrion Lannister and what he says to Jon about the Night's Watch. Now, Tyrion at the time does not believe in grumpkins, snarks, and other things that go bump in the night and all that stuff. Um, Definitely doesn't think everyone in this world lived inside the eye of a blue-eyed giant named Macumber, but... I love it's a Tyrion building moment that pays off pretty pretty soon within season one. Again, Lannister, that Lannister name is not supposed to be something you like, right? But here's Tyrion, and I love his speech to Jon Snow on the way up to the wall in which he basically says, here's the truth. It's a harsh truth. I personally don't like the I tell it like it is type of folks in the world. Sometimes I just think that means you're an a-hole. But I do like 
Tyrion in this moment, it's not telling it like it is. He is being honest because it, it he knows he knows it's what Jon Snow needs. If Jon Snow is going to go up there and, and, and make a mark, he really needs to see it for what it is, and then maybe he can help. Maybe he can help change it. I think that's a little bit what Tyrion does later on uh, in episode three when he uh, uh, really, you know, not just helps Jon and saves the day, but helps kind of hey, get over yourself. Get over yourself, Jon Snow, and your fancy castle, and uh, now you're up at the wall. Help. Don't bully. Don't primp and preen. Uh, uh, Alistair Thorne's actually kind of right. Alistair Thorne, as a lot of you know, is is uh, uh, one of my uh, favorite characters. I love the I love the grumpy a holes in the show there. And and Alistair, Alistair Thorne speaks a lot of truths. He makes some mistakes. He's got a harsh side to him. I do love his moment uh, later on in the Watchers of the Wall episode where uh, he gets his hero moment in a way. Um, but I think that really helps John. It helps Tyrion, and it's and it's to me one of those moments that that means more now. That John, who John became, a lot of it maybe goes back, yeah, not a lot of it, but a small a small important percentage goes back to this moment where Tyrion kind of tells him the truth of the world, and maybe that's something he hadn't learned at Winterfell yet, because even as a as a bastard with. Uh, a mother figure who didn't treat him that well with Catelyn Stark, John was still insulated, still lived in a world of privilege behind those walls. So I, I think Tyrion was kind of saying, here, here, kid, here's how it goes. So those are things I love in episode two. Wrap it up here in episode three. Hope you guys are sticking with me. Uh, Lord Snow is the name of that episode. I always forget that's the name. We right away, we start focusing on Lord Snow up there. And that's the great stuff up the wall. Um, Another, another it's right moment. And it's tough. It's hard to admit. It's that great scene where Cersei is uh, talking with Joffrey, who's, of course, not yet in charge, um, but the heir apparent, right? And she's coaching him a little bit. This is, this is when she still had his ear. She still could control him. And I definitely believe Cersei loses that control later on. Um, I love this moment, though, because in a weird way, and I never, you never want to say Joffrey's right, but Joffrey's speech of, of having a national kind of united army, how everyone, every, there's these lord, we have all these armies and these banners and the answer to their lords. That's how you get rebellion. We need, we, we got a, we got a, you know, a Targaryen and a horde on the other side of the world, um, Dothraki horde, we got threats, and we, you know, if you believe, you know, no one here currently believes the threats coming down from north of the wall, other than wildings in their mind. But Joffrey's idea of, you know, we should form one army that we'd better defend ourselves against outside threats. We'd be fighting, we're fighting with each other too much. And it comes from this real sniveling place of contempt, of course, for the north. And also, so Cer- Cersei makes a lot of mistakes. We know that, but um, I, I do, I, I, and, and it's such a credit to to how they crafted this character, how George R. R. Martin crafted this character, but how Lena Headey brought life to this character. But you know, you, you know she's doing horrible things, but you 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 sympathize with her a lot, and you see a lot of her things. I, in, in in this moment, there's such devotion to her son, and she's got good counsel. Yeah, I like the idea of a united king's army, so to speak. But how are you going to do that? We can't control the North. We need the Starks. And you're going to have to wed this girl. And if you want to F painted whores, whores, you'll F painted whores, which is uh, one of my favorite lines there. Um, And Joffrey, it's one of the, it's one of the last kind of moments I think in my mind, in my mind at least where Joffrey is, is submissive enough to learn submissive enough to, you know, Look at her as, as the wise one in the situation, though he's very opinionated and, and knows what he knows. But he's also right, and 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 it's fascinating, and 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 it means more now. Long after Joffrey dies, it means more now to season seven. If you had one army, if it was somehow not seven kingdoms, but one, and Dorne finally, you know, finally bent the knee. Hey, come on, get in the fold here. Um, would it be easier to then deal with 
Daenerys. Again, from our point of view, I think we're rooting for Daenerys, but from just the point of view of Westeros, you could deal with that easier. Yes, you're going to have people along the way who probably would rather have a Targaryen restored to the Iron Throne. We get that, but you don't have to worry about them calling their banners. I mean, Joffrey is the byproduct of Robert's rebellion. It's kind of one of those things. He knows how well rebellions work because that's kind of why he's here and in the position that he is. So I think it's right. I think it's interesting. And I think, uh, you know, what we're dealing with now, even now going into season eight, everyone's looking north as they should. We got a lot of problems coming down from the lands of always winter. We also got Cersei on the throne. Like, yeah, you go fight. I got some plans too. So if we just had one, it'll be be easier. So it's a weird moment, maybe. There's probably other moments you might choose in episode three, Lord Snow. Let me know. That's mine. Second one, just a fun little moment. It's a character I love. And, and yeah, a lot of people didn't like the way uh, his, his story and his life ended. But I love going back to the moment where Peter Baelish, Littlefinger, oh, the guy who started all the problems, right, is uh, stirring up the pot even more. He's got Catelyn Stark in his brothel. He's got Varys the spider there, and uh, he pulls out the little cat's paw dagger, right? The little Valyrian steel dagger. And I love the game he plays, especially again now that we know. Uh, and then season one, episode three, you, you, if, if, again, if you haven't read the books, you're still trying to, you're figuring out all the players. And here's, here's Baelish. Oh, cat, you can trust me. We're childhood friends. Oh, I, 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 I had a crush on you back then. We're good. We're good. Don't worry about me. I, in fact, hey, I'm, I'm going to help your. I'm going to help your husband. It's going to be great. And oh, by the way, yeah, I know whose dagger that is. It's mine. I lost it to Tyrion Lannister. He clearly did the murder, or paid for the murder, or arranged the murder. I love it. But what I love is the specific moment where Baelish is. Oh, yes, it's mine. Because that, of course, is going to be the blade that will kill him. The blade that Arya will end up with. The blade will take his life. And I I think that it's a small, little moment for me that I love so much. It's built into the story. It's a long play from Martin himself that we haven't seen it play out in the books, but I love, I love it there. A little fun moment there. The last one then uh, I want to talk about in episode three is the sad, tragic... Final moment, final kiss between Catelyn Stark and Lord Eddard Stark. Um, of course, she's uh, snuck on down with Roderick Cassell. She uh, gets a little bit of time, a little reunion. You know, we don't know how long they spent, but we know that this is their last moment together. It's their last kiss. And that that gains a lot more significance by episode nine. But as the show and the story rolls on, this just has even that much more feeling to me, that much more importance, that much more sadness draped over it. But it is a beautiful little moment, a reminder, too, that our own lives, we don't know, you don't know, you don't know your last moments, people you lose, situations change, you don't know. And it's a great reminder, it's a deep philosophical reminder, but also in story, it's very bittersweet. There's great love there. Love that grew. We know it was a, a marriage um, that occurred after, you know, Brandon Stark uh, dies and Eddard steps up. All right, I guess I'll, I'll marry uh, I'll marry my brother's girlfriend. All right, my brother's fiance. I'll, I'll, do, I'll do what I must. But love grew. Real love grew. And it's there. It's in that moment. It's felt. And so later on, anything that Kat is feeling about Eddard, any sadness, any frustration, any anger, again, when Baelish shows up with uh, you know his bones. All this kind of, I think you could tie it to that moment. There's some great stuff in, in episode one. Uh, you see them together as a functional uh, couple. They have important conversations, but he's gone. By the end of boom, he's gone. Eddard is gone, heading down the King's Road to King's Landing, and this is their final moment, and it should be cherished. After this, it all changes. Catelyn goes north makes what I, I do believe is, is uh, I'll say it, the biggest mistake as for a character in the show, at least so far. I mean, there's others. It's a great conversation. And I never want to be too harsh on Catelyn Stark. 
I don't know what else you would expect her to do in that moment. But when she eventually takes Tyrion captive, it, as we know, is just the the sheet being pulled off the uh, dining room table there. Except for this time, all the silverware goes everywhere. And it's what Baelish wanted. Um, I can't falter. She is acting out of uh, a protective nature for her family, and specifically Bran. And she makes a, a snap judgment. I think a lot of people would have made in that moment. You got him there. Did he arrange for Bran to be pushed, killed, or whatever happened to him? Did he do it? Did he know? He's here. Let's take him into custody and find out. That is fair. But it starts a world of events, and it all gets crazy from there, and it never really slows down. But that last moment between Catelyn Stark and Ned Stark is just pitch perfect in its pace and its tenderness and what we later learned, its significance and importance. So that is my discussion. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you stuck around here on Casterly Talk Season 8 Prep. More to come. We'll go into each episode. We'll do them in bunches. Maybe I'll bring in some guests. we got the big shows, the, uh, the, the reviews we're going to do during this year. Lon, Andres, Rachel, Michelle, and more. A lot of people come on into the studio to, to talk here. So I hope you're, we'll do some mini episodes. I'm looking at doing much like I did with Daily Thrones. You might get some things uh, during the week, just a tiny little episodes. Uh, I hope you're here. I'm getting into GOT fighting shape, and I want to know if you are too and how you're doing it and are you ready. And am I the only one that studies the maps? I doubt I am. That's it for now. We'll see you next time on Casterly Talk. Mm-hmm.